Hi, I'm Cheryl Gates. I'm a certified professional midwife and a midwifery educator. Okay, so my first question is, is maybe it's silly. I'm always curious about the names. I have heard midwife and I've heard doula. Is mm-hmm. there a difference? What's, what's the difference between a midwife and a doula? So a doula is someone who gives you labor support. They love on you. They bring you food. They rub your back. They hold your hand. They encourage you. They give you ideas about ways to make your labor better. Um, they might feed you things that you might forget, like words to help you make choices during labor, but they're not a healthcare provider. Midwives okay. are healthcare providers. They are helping keep you and your baby safe and managing complications. So tell me the biggest difference. I know that, for instance, there's a difference in nursing school, but in your mind, what is the difference between a midwife who is often there, obviously there before a delivery during the pregnancy and then during the childbirth and then oftentimes provide support after the childbirth? How is it different than uh, nurses or folks who are working in delivery centers and hospitals? How is what you do different than that? So when you look at managed care now and corporatized healthcare, most appointments are about seven minutes long. So the education component is gone and then they have a really high volume. So individual care is lacking. Um, They might still be giving the best care they can give in that situation. But for us, we're spending prenatally like an hour um, on the same schedule of appointments. So once a month and then every two weeks and then every week, we're spending an hour with them and we educate them for 20 minutes. And then we um, ask about their lives, their social history for the month. And that tells us actually more than you would know when you say, how are you? Someone usually tells you everything you need to know. And then we spend another 20 minutes measuring them, listening to their baby, checking their blood pressure. So our volume's lower, which means every single mother is really close to us. I know every single one of them. I know their names. I know where they live. I know what their husbands do or their partners do. Um, I know what's important to them. And so in that way, less people get lost. There are not um, as many people that feel like they're not being paid attention to and they're not being heard. Then during labor, it's a very different experience because outside of the hospital, we don't have the same view of, of We still have some of the same safety standards, um, but we're coming to your environment and we are helping you have your baby your way. Can I ask a quick question about that? I am curious Mm -hmm. about, so what percentage of the women that you work with as a midwife, what percentage of them want to have home births and do wind up having home births if you just ballpark it? So usually about 97% of the women who come to me want a home birth. Um, Let's see, 85% of first-time mothers will have a home birth, 15% will go to the hospital. About 94% of the people who make it to labor and have already had a baby and who are not a VBAC will have a baby at home after starting labor at home with me. Um, and then Wait, what VBAC, is it? Wait, tell me, yes, what's a VBAC? So that is a woman who's had a cesarean um, in her lifetime. And so then it's a vaginal birth after cesarean. They will transfer more often than everyone else because you have to keep the guidelines really tight to keep them safe. Um, I actually don't do many VBACs, but for a really motivated couple, I'll consider it. Do some people who've never worked with you or uh, do some people say, we for sure want to go to the hospital, but we definitely want a midwife there? Yes. Um, And that situation is usually a VBAC. 
who um, one example is like a family that I had done births for and their last baby had really been in grave danger and had a much needed life-saving um, cesarean. They got pregnant again and around 37 weeks, her husband um, asked me, so what happens if her uterus ruptures at home, which the answer is it's devastating. So he said, I'm not comfortable. And so I made arrangements for them to meet with an OB at a local hospital. And I kept taking care of them. And when they went into labor, we went into the hospital together and I stayed there with her while the OB delivered the baby. Is it, what is it like for you to work at home in a person's home uh, versus when you do get called in to, to help, help with a childbirth in the hospital? So once, because of the difference between the midwives that are nurse midwives and the midwife that I am, I have no privileges at a hospital. So at home, this is my thing. I'm the highest level care provider is what it's called, which means um, when something goes wrong, I am the person that needs to take care of it. When we transfer to the hospital, we are now outside my scope, which means usually there's a complication that I can't manage. So we go in and I'm now a doula. I practice in the doula role. I support them. I love them. I hold their hand. I help them make decisions, but I don't give them medical care in the hospital. Have the hospitals ever, are there certain hospitals or certain providers or certain situations you've run into where they don't even want, they don't even want people in, in that doula role for some reason? One time. Okay. Only one time. And how long have you been doing this? About 15 years. Okay. And only one time. And right. so if it's, if it's okay to talk about it, what did you know going in, this was going to be a problem? What happened? At the time, this group at this hospital had a statement on the wall that said that if you've taken a Bradley class or have a doula, they will not take you as a patient. And um, they are no longer at that hospital, but it was a known thing. And ACOG, there um, it's, their body that kind of talks to them and tells them what their standards should be and how they, um, what do we call it? Wait, what is that? It's like the, ACOG, what is American, ACOG? American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. God, they say okay. a doula should be allowed. A doula should be with the mother. So even they say the doula should be allowed in. This particular group wasn't having it. And so I sat in the waiting room. Okay. Uh, did they allow, was it normal practice? They still allowed the, if there was a spouse, did they allow the spouse or the partner to come in? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And the hospital that I transfer to most, I don't count as a doula. I count as a healthcare provider. I don't give healthcare, but they don't count me in the number of people in the room. Okay. What does it feel like to, as you ramp up a relationship with uh, a new expectant mother and then delivery and out, what does this whole process feel like? It's a long process coming in, a long process going out. I don't know. What does it feel like to you? Well, about half or more of my families are ones we've already had babies together. So that is a really unique, deep relationship when you have helped them have child after child together. Yeah. The new ones, it's interesting because you kind of have to learn your audience. You don't really know exactly what are we doing here? What is your belief system? What's your relationship with your husband or partner like? And um, what are your expectations of me? Some of the ones that are the most disorienting for me come from the hospital um, previously and they don't expect much from me. And I'm always like, you all right? I mean, you haven't called me in like six weeks. 
<laughs> and they're like, no, I was fine. I just didn't need you. And I'm like, that's so weird. Okay. <laughs> in those cases, do they ever say, maybe on the exit interview version, do you ever find out what were your expectations of what I would do as a midwife? I literally made a handout several years ago that they're required to fill out during their pregnancy that asks them, what are you most excited about? What are you most afraid of? What do you expect from me? Are you getting what you need from me? What else could I do that would help you? Because I needed to know. I like Even people we've had babies together, their life may have changed. And so if something was different this time, I can't tailor my care if they don't talk to me and they didn't know to talk to me about it. Are some of them, are some of your mothers that you've done multiple births with, um, are they really... Um, worried the first time and then once they've done it they just don't reach out to you as much because they just feel better and they feel more confident first time moms are a very different investment okay. um, that... <laughs> yes just imagine your first baby how you didn't know how to change a diaper you didn't know if the baby was okay you didn't like everything they they need to know everything um, and their labors are typically more than twice as long or at least twice as long as somebody who's had a baby so it's lots of support, but if you build that it, base, is it mostly on, is it mostly on the way in or as you've talked about changing diapers and stuff, is there support on the way out or is it sort of just a mix of both? In those well, cases? it's both. And we do more on the postpartum side and the newborn side than the hospital does. And so we're already investing more time in people. I feel like a lot of what you're talking about, the the preparation, the emotional and logistical preparation going in and then the birth and the way yeah. out, I feel like normally this is a situation for people that don't have midwives and doulas and don't have a lot of help from healthcare providers. Or, they're going to get this from their mothers and their yes. grandmothers and their right. best friends. That's so, what they should be getting. But those okay. are traumatized generations. Think about it. If you watch, watch the movie, The Business of Being Born it kind of details how the transition from midwifery care to hospital care in the twenties and thirties, um, like women went through twilight sleep where they were giving given sedatives and there are videos of them laying in bed in labor, screaming, crying alone, but sedated. So they had no memory of their babies coming out. And so we've worked our way. Modern obstetrics is way better. I mean, even in the 70s, the women were strapped to the bed. And so when you're looking for support for your mom to tell you how her normal labor went, right? you might be getting it from a woman who's been traumatized or didn't have a good labor. There's that. Okay. And they weren't even allowed to have their husbands in. So they don't know what labor support looks like. Because when they went in, their entire support system was forced to stay outside and they were Correct. planted in the room. Correct. Yep. Is there a difference you have observed? Uh, what does it feel? How is it different to have a baby in your home versus having a baby in, let's say, your ideal home environment versus mm -hmm. having a baby in an ideal hospital environment? So a wonderful birth center full of caring people. Everything's top notch. What, to your impression, what is the what is is there a big difference or is it really so individual you can't say? Well, can I could give you the difference in person rather okay. than place. Yes. So when you take me to a hospital, I don't feel safe. I feel scared. I feel like a caged animal. Like I want them to please not touch me. Like, please just don't touch me. And 
when you take me home, even if I'm in pain, if everything's okay, it's like peace. Um, after my brain injury, I checked out on the first day that I was with it enough to take out my IV and tell them I was leaving, I did. Knowing that if I went home and something went wrong, I would not be in the right place to get help. And I can remember when I hit the bed, I would the relief that washed over me, I knew I was where I needed to be. There are other people, however, that if you put them at, in labor at home would be terrified. Okay. This doesn't feel safe to them. This is not the right place for them. And they get to the hospital and there are good places to have your baby in the hospital. And when they get there, they relax, they're happy. It's a good experience for them. So it's the individual rather than the place. Does, given the fact that so many of your clients, almost all of them, un unless there's a complication, yeah. are, they're planning to have the birth at home and that's what they wanted. Do a lot of them have the same wariness or worry about hospitals or do most of them just have kind of a, I would rather do this at home. That's my preference, but they there's don't have a, a mix of that. Okay. There, I tend to lean towards not taking people. If you said to me, yeah. I will not have my baby in the hospital no matter what. I say, I'm sorry, I cannot take you because no matter what is a really rough go and I hurt too. And it's not a good idea. You have to be willing to get help when we need it because that's how it stays safe. Um, and so I tend to have a lot of women who are like, home seems like a good idea. I think I'll be okay. I feel safe and happy there. But if we need help, let's go get some help. That's my average person. But you do also have women who are very traumatized, who, um, when you're talking about abuse survivors, a home feels a lot safer to them most okay. of the time. Do you, have you run into situations where the, uh, the romantic relationship scaffolding this um, new pregnancy was worrisome to you, that you thought the relationship between husband and wife or um, partner and partner that it, it felt off and wrong or uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay, how do you navigate that? Well, for many years, the way I looked at it is this is between them. This is not my domain. Stay out of it. If she asks for help, I'll be here. And then over time, I started to see that I have a window that most people don't have where I see things that other people don't. I Like I see the insides of their homes and I see how they talk to each other in the moments when they forget that someone's watching. And to be honest, I did start saying, um, you know, that's abuse, right? The name, the name you're looking for is abuse. So I started calling abuse, abuse. Um, now there are times when it's just like, meh, like, I don't, I don't love it, but it's, <laughs> and that's fine. That's a whole nother thing. And generally in labor, she'll be, there'll be moments where they forget you're in the room, um, and things are just right. And you'll see, oh, there's what there's what they do that they love or there's what's beautiful about her or there's what's beautiful about him. And most of the time I can get there. So there's a difference between abuse and not um, gelling with someone the same way that I do with other people. Or seeing people who have a relationship and you're like, well, I wouldn't want yeah. that, but I understand yeah. how it works for you. Yes, that's fine. We can do that. I don't need any input on that type of thing. What happens if someone is expecting twins or triplets, basically multiple babies? Is it still okay to have it at home? How do you navigate no. that? No, 
Okay, I've it's not okay. Friends at home. Um, I've had many, maybe five, right? So five sets of twins-ish. Most of the time, we don't even have to make the decision about whether we'd have the baby at home because twins is a very, like you find it out and you say, congratulations, I'm so excited for you. And then inside you think, okay, here we go. <laughs> because if they're in the same bag, they might be in the hospital from the time they're um, 24 weeks until the babies are born. Okay. Um, if they are sharing placenta, one of them might grow and one of them might not. Um, you don't always make it to delivery with two babies just because you got pregnant with twins. Yeah. And so there's a lot of hard things that go with having twins. What, how did you get, how did you get started doing this? You said you've been doing it for 15 years. Yes. What, so what kicked this and made you think, ah, this is something I would be good at or something you're attracted to, or you're like, I have skills for this. I'm ready. (laughs) So I have the personality for it. And that came, I was an explorer, which is a Boy Scouts program when I was 15 with um, ambulances. When I was 18, I became an EMT. And then I had thought I wanted to be a flight nurse. (laughs) Thank goodness I found out that I don't like flying at all. Um, And I had a baby. And Wait, so, can I really quickly, can I ask about that flight nurse thing? So yeah. EMT, uh, is a flight nurse somebody like works on a med vac chopper or something? Yes. Oh. I still think that sounds like so much fun. Um, <laughs> if I could fly. And so th- from there, I started like, you know, where am I going from here? And started doing some nursing school prerequisites. Actually, I was in paramedic school and then found out how much paramedics get paid. And at the time it was in the 20s. Yeah. And I was like, that's not enough money to live on. And so decided, okay, I'd move into nursing. And then let's see, it was many years before I got pregnant again. And when I did, I had seen an article in the Kansas City Star about my first midwife. And then when I got pregnant, I was like, well, I have pretty good births. Like I was in the hospital maybe four and a half hours before my first came at 18 with no epidural. And like got up out of the bed and pushed him down to the next room myself because I felt fine. (laughs) And and we were uninsured. There's that. And I was like, why should I pay $15,000 for something that I do just fine? Um, And when I called, that midwife didn't answer the phone. The person who became my best friend did. And she and I, it was like we'd always been together. And... By the time she started her practice, separate from the other midwife, I've now had at that point two, one baby and a, I don't know if it was legal or not, but a loft in the city market (laughs) and wasn't mine (laughs) so many years ago. And then the next one was at home. And shortly after that, my friend started her practice and said, you used to be an EMT. You've got these nursing credits. Why don't you? come with me. And I did my first birth and I was like, there it is. That's what I'm going to do. But I had already been accepted to William Jewell to their nursing program when I got pregnant with that baby to start to be a certified nurse midwife. But when I found out about the collaborative practice agreement issue, that is still an issue in the Midwest where I would not be able to do a home birth without a physician signing a piece of paper saying that he would take responsibility for it. I was like, uh, uh, so, so after that birth, is that like started. an added, if you want to become a, a nurse or nursing midwife, 
you have this added thing where you need yes. to agree to this added. Oh, yes. okay. And that is why um, in, on the coast now, they have independent practice where if you have your master's, um, you can practice without a collaborative practice agreement. But the Midwest is always last. <laughs> uh, that Yeah, that does happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. There's maybe more innovation on the coast. Yep, yeah, correct. What about, you know, you said, so we, I get it. There's a lot of skills that go into this, but it's interesting. So you have, you had some, uh, you, you had some nursing education, you had worked as an EMT. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you, you had some medical skills beyond the average, beyond the average person. Right. You work, you said you had the personality for, I want to dig into that, but also like, it's interesting. Like you're like, well, I just sort of innately kind of, I can have these babies myself. And you're like, Well, there must be something there that means I could teach other people how to do this. That is a very interesting thinking to me. Well, how did that well, thinking evolve? Like you're good at something, so you're like, I think I could teach other people how to do this. Well, I grew up on a farm. Okay. A farm, watching cows have babies. Like how I learned about sex was watching a couple of cows out in the field being like, oh, <laughs> that looks awful. What is going? Oh dear God. Like that was my sex ed. Yes. And um. My grandfather's mother either died in childbirth or right after childbirth. Nobody's really clear about that. And then the baby also passed away. And my grandfather was kind of farmed out to an aunt. And so I grew up on this farm with him, listening to him say, doctors are awful. Doctors are awful. They killed my mother. You don't need that kind of care. We don't do those things. Um, The extent of medical care that I saw him give himself was just not like, just no. And um, so I don't, I guess I just kind of grew up like women. I, what I was told about childbirth, which yeah. I believe your mother's story is incredibly impactful, was we're good birthers, it hurts, and then the baby comes out, and then you're fine. That is exactly what happened to me. And so it was like, it's cultural knowledge is what it is when you think about it. It's ancestral knowledge that was handed down. Wait, so tell me how that ancestral knowledge differs differs especially from maybe what you figure the average message for today's um, American woman before her first birth. What does she get? You were told that message. What message mm-hmm. do you think they get? Well, a lot of women get a very terrified mother or grandmother saying, okay. um, I I almost died. I almost died. Or um, my baby was dying. And so they did a C-section. And the truth is a lot of C-sections are not emergencies. They might be needed, but they're certainly not emergencies. And America's C-section rate is absolutely indefensible. Like it is, they cannot defend what they did, especially for one time period. It's getting better, but we're still not there. And the detriment to the mother of a C-section is each progressive C-section. So with your first, you have a certain percentage risk of dying. With your second C-section, it goes up. With your third C-section, it goes up. It keeps going up. So the mother's life becomes more at risk each time. So these are the women telling the children what their births are going to be like. Okay. Our C-section rate in America at one point, I believe, was almost 40%. That it, the World Health Organization says it should be 15. 
I feel so maybe this is wandering too much into just our own speculation. I've also heard that in America, and again, I don't know what's driving this. It could be lots of things, but I have heard our infant mortality rate is oh, not yeah. fantastic these days yeah. compared to many other industrialized first world countries. And so we're usually last if okay. we're even in with the first world countries. There was a time a couple years ago where we were behind a non-industrialized country. In infant or maternal, like both of them, we're almost always last. Now with infant, I have heard that some of it has to do with them trying to keep babies alive that in other countries wouldn't have access to resuscitation. Sure. Um, so there's that. But then when you look at the disparities between white babies and black babies and white women and black ba- women in America, racism becomes real clear. Like there's, there's genetically nothing different about me and a black woman. But she is significantly more likely to die. And a black baby in Kansas a couple of years ago, it was 18 times more likely that the black baby would die in the first year of life. So these are the things that currently my heart for social health has become yeah. deep because that is the woman that getting individualized care with someone paying attention. It might just be life saving someday. But it's certainly when you look at what's happening is that obviously they're not getting the care that they need because of systemic racism, giving them the opportunity to just have someone be their companion through the health care is impactful, even if it's not life saving. So in many cases, even if the person so even if a person might have access, if they fought hard, if they had to, they have to right. fight harder than somebody else, Correct. they could get it. But they'd have to know how to advocate and Correct. who to ask and where to Correct. get the help. Yeah. And someone would have to listen to them. Yeah. And they'd have to be treated the same. Um, that was an eye-opening experience for me. I had been with all of these families over all of these years, which were mostly white families, because access to home birth includes, uh, like, there were no black midwives in our region. My senior student will pass her exam in June, and she'll be the first in the Kansas City area. Okay. Um, and so the access, there were just blocks. And so then going to the hospital with black women and watching how they were treated differently and knowing it, like, I know it, I watched it. It was like, what is going on? Like, I didn't believe this happened. And it was right there. Um, so I have can, a big heart for that. Right can now. you talk a little, so having, having sat there and been right close to the person who's going through mm-hmm. these situations, what, what does that look like? So the difference between it's the- oh, so little things yeah. that um, most people wouldn't pick up if they didn't know, like I would be more likely to be called by my name. Um, I watched one birth where the healthcare provider kept going, oh, mama, come on, mama, push your baby up, mama. And I was like, stop calling her mama. Write your name on her glove. She has a name. Um. And it was a, it's called um, infantilism, um, where it sounds like they're talking to a kindergartner. Um, So that I have seen women who are not consenting to something. They are saying, I do not consent. And it is still done to them. I cannot imagine what I would do if that was done to me. But that would, why would I be the one to say, I can't imagine what I would do because I have the privilege of looking around a room and knowing if I throw a fit everything in this room is going to stop. And that isn't always the case for women of color in America. 
And in those cases, so again, I think it's only fair to say we're we're speculating, but what do you have you ever seen those people in those moments if they're sort of confronted are do they ever realize ever what they're doing or have you ever been in a situation where you had to force them to realize what they're doing and yes. they have an epiphany in the moment well i've never seen anybody have an epiphany okay <laughs> no <one> ever <laughs> because, immediately yes all right no, gotcha. there's no benefit to anyone for me to say do you realize what you're doing right there is called infantilism and it's kind of condescending and if you could just learn her name that'd be great um, but uh, like one woman, no one in the room was talking to her. Every, all the providers were talking to each other about what they were going to do to her, but no one was talking to her about what they were going to do to her. So I just stood at the head of the bed and bent down in her ear and they could see what I was doing. And I would say, you're going to feel them touch you. They're going to check you now. Your baby's doing really good. They said your baby's doing really good. And so it was more just about acknowledging her. She could hear what they were doing. But the third person of experience of having people around you talking about you and what they're going to do to you like they can't even see you. I was like, I all I could do was try to help connect her to the moment. And I fired a nurse one time that I don't I didn't fire her. I was like, stop touching her. You have to stop touching her. She said no. And the nurse got upset with me. And I said, you need to go get someone else. And the next person who came in knew me and was like, what happened? And when I told her, she said she must have been having a bad day. I said she must have been. It didn't go well. So this this sounds like I can imagine we haven't talked about how grueling the work is, mm -hmm. but this must be tiring and exhausting. I know you're good at it. Why do you do it? So 15 years why do you continue to do it? And is that have you had to, in some ways, ramp back or change how much you do or how many pa patients you take on because you know the toll it takes? Well, what has happened is I've had to learn to be good about self-care. So, okay. um, like, I, massage is my healing modality. I will go get a massage when I start to feel really worn down. Um, I've learned to say no more. I've learned to have better boundaries about, like, my cell phone please don't ring my cell phone between 9 p.m. and 9 a.m. Because it's, it's when you've got 60 women and right. they're all texting you at 7.30 in the morning because they're morning people and I am not. It's like, please don't. Because I immediately wake up in a panic because I think something is wrong. Can you save it for when something is wrong? Um, I switched charting software because it has a chat feature in it and it tells everybody, and I set the time and it tells them, the dinger is turned off from this time to this time. If something is wrong, you need to call my cell phone. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> I do see an end. Like I, I imagine I have 12 or 15 years left in me. Um, but I, I can't imagine a day when I won't want to do it anymore. But now we're getting into second generation babies. Then what, Brendan? Like they're, the baby that I helped be born is within years of asking me to help them have a baby. You know that's going to be a whole nother level of I can't say no to that. So I feel like there's an easy thing. I feel I feel like the, this isn't true of all modern doctors, but many doctors now 
work in practices yes. where, and I know OBGYN do this, mm-hmm. these, births, these births could happen anytime. So yes. even though you have a particular doctor that you love, yes. there's no guarantee that when you're going to give birth, that doctor's around, she may be busy with another birth correct? or she may be on vacation. If she's on vacation, you just take whoever else is running in the practice. I know you are sort of more solo than the doctor. You're kind of like yes. a, you know, you're a bit like a country doctor. There's no alternative bit. for the country yes, doctor. right. Correct. So how However, do you manage I've been working that? on this okay. ever since my brain injury, you know, when I, I was it. And then I was in the ICU and everybody had to figure out how to get into my charting software. And the midwives came together and they took care of everybody until I could do it again. But it opened my eyes. Okay. I was like, this isn't sustainable. I need to, like today, I was baking and needed to leave for a birth. And I said to Kim, I need a day off. One full day where I know that I don't have to go anywhere so that I can just rest. And that hasn't happened for me in so long. So Kim is passing her exam in June. I'm speaking life to that. It is happening. Um, And her and I are like peanut butter and jelly. And so while she will have her own practice, we will begin giving each other days off and backing each other up. And my best friend is who trained me. And she and I back each other up. Um, And when everything is over, then I will have days off, supposedly. So I have a so I have a question about how you figured out because it sounds like in your 15 years you figured out kind of where your limits were and you figured mm-hmm. out maybe where your patient number limit. Yes. Is yes. this just a case? Could you just pull your patient number limit down by a third or yeah. down by okay? And so the, that's but this happens to lots of healthcare providers. I will say it. Mm-hmm. So I've worked with veterinarians. A lot of people have a hard time. What's the thing that just keeps you from cutting back by a third? I just want to take as many cases. Well, I do have months where like April, I only had one person at the beginning of the month and one at the end and had backup planned and everybody knew it. I was supposed to be taking my children to Colorado and then going on a different trip. And then like in July, I'll be going out of town. And so I've started just looking at certain months and being like, I'm going to take a break that month. There doesn't seem to be as many people coming. I'll just not take anybody else and go out of town for a little bit. Okay. It's good for me. It's so good to go somewhere. But you do not do the right now. You know, again, I feel like the people, if the healthcare providers or whoever, whoever is a person who has a service that other people need, yeah. at some point, some people just make a decision. Well, I just feel like cutting back. So you just cut back. And it sounds well, like that's you're not going to happen in COVID 2020. <laughs> like, Probably not. World, yes. That sounds great. But right now, you, you look at these women and you're like, sure. What is one night's lost sleep when you're doing what you're having to do right now? So you've mentioned you, you've mentioned your traumatic brain injury a couple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to talk about that for we a few can minutes? If you want, it doesn't bother me. Well, just tell maybe in the way at which because were you were you doing midwife work before you had your injury? Oh yeah. Okay, so it sounds, yes, you had a busy practice. Mm-hmm. Other people had to take over and manage it because you didn't have any, there was just no other, you were doing it as a totally solo thing. Right. How did you get the injury and how did your life change after that? And how did that change the work you do? Well, I was roller skating with my children. Okay, that sounds I was fun. skating backwards and I passed out and got a skull fracture and a brain bleed. Um, and it was a miraculous recovery that was still a lot of hard work. Um, that first year was rough. Um, and after that, 
the learning to say no, learning to have limits, learning to look at people and say, I might not be here. Like, I know that you're hiring me. There might be a backup midwife because maybe my children will be sick. Maybe I will be in the hospital. Things happen. So you have to be okay with me calling in the help I need when I need it. And that might be at this point in my life. I don't know if it's my age or that. It might be that if I've been up going on 48 hours, I need to call in someone so I can go home and sleep for six hours because I can't keep going at some point. I can't give good care if I force myself to keep going beyond a reasonable limit. So before your brain injury, were you still in the space? uh, Were you still in that sort of, you just, at least, even if you didn't feel indestructible, you sort of lived your life like you were. I had, I felt like I had to. The the phrases I would have used would have been, I have to. Okay. And then having that taken away from you where you didn't get to make the choice to not be able to, and the world kept going and people had babies. They still loved me and (laughs) things were okay. It was like, all right, well, so this is going to be okay. And learning that it's probably, it's reasonable for me to say, it's healthy for me to have time off. It's healthy for me to sleep. And expect people to understand that. And it's gone okay. They've done okay with it. Was it scary first testing that boundary? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was. Do you re- do you remember maybe like the first time you were testing a boundary with a client in a way you hadn't? I mean. I'm trying to think of the first time. I know, because it's, it's a while ago. Or just like, yeah, when you were nervous about the first time I'm going to turn this, you know, dinger message on, or the first time I'm going to tell this person, no, I can't take it because I'm, I'm too booked in a particular month I or whatever. I left to go see my son and it didn't, she was not happy with me. And it was at the time, like we talked about it and it, it was agreed upon and Rachel came in and Rachel stayed with them and I flew out and it took repair work. We had to sit down and talk about um, how she felt about it. Yeah. Um, but I, I generally am pretty humble. I know that things can hurt or they may not come across right the first time or it just didn't go well. And so in those situations, I apologize. I say, what can I do to make it better? And with her, she needed me to hear her. So I sat with her and we talked about it. And I think we seem pretty okay. We still text every once in a while. I'll say, hey, how are you? I'm thinking about you. Um. There have been times um, I have told people when it comes to there can be a very religious base to midwifery. And when that has come up in appointments in the last couple years, I generally will say that isn't a part of what we're doing together. While we may share some language or belief, that isn't a part of the midwifery. Um, And has that been as successful as the other situations and people sort of back off and understand or maybe not? goes both ways I've okay. had people just straight out not hire me okay and I look at that as like that's okay let's do that now and right you weren't a good fit it's better mm-hmm. to do that at the beginning yes and then I've had people who have said I respect that um thank you for telling me okay. so I've had both receptions of it and I felt okay about both of them so your clients feel one way your family feels one way generally when you introduce yourself to a stranger or something and they ask, Oh, Cheryl, Oh, what do you do? And you say, I'm a midwife. What do people generally think about that? Do you have is, you want me to do it for you? This is what they do. Oh yeah, please. Oh my God. 
you have the most amazing job ever. That is so cool. And you're like, well, it's a satisfying job. It's an incredibly satisfying job. It is not always a cool job. It can be very not glamorous and it can be a very hard job. So it's kind of like, I see that you've watched Goat, let, what's the show? Call the Midwife. I see that you've watched that. That isn't <laughs> actually how it goes. <laughs> can I tell you, you have the same painful experience and it's sometimes painful and sometimes gratifying, but veterinarians have the same thing because the first words out of people's mouths are always, yeah. oh my God, you get to play with puppies and kittens all day. And the like, truth is they're probably no. wiping up poop and puke all day. Yep, or terrible things. Yes. I have to put animals yes. to sleep. So right. do, if you, do you ever, so you kind of, you have um, a careful answer. Are you ever tired of the person's really obnoxious about going over the top about how that's so amazing and blah, 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 or it must be so easy or so gratifying. Is there ever something you're like, really, let me tell you. And do you ever give like a 30 second spiel mm -hmm. about anything? Let me think. Because <laughs> this would be I the tired. I generally don't engage it much okay. because it feels inauthentic to me. Like you don't know me and you're giving me all of this complimentary verbiage, but you don't know me. And yeah. so then I, I usually will say, you know, sometimes that's my usual response is sometimes it's a great job. It's a very satisfying job. I'll try to move off the topic <laughs> of my job and move away from what I do. I, the most common thing I get, Beyond that, if like the job title, they respond that way. But then the topic, home birth, they'll say, you're so brave. What do you do with the mess? That is the question that everybody <laughs> gets every damn question. time. What do you do with the mess? Do you ever jack with him and like, oh, it's a cultural thing. We eat it. Uh -huh. Everything oh, left. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> people do eat their placentas now. I and know. So we'll joke do. about that. Okay. Um, yeah. Yep. I, I'll, I'll say something like carpet shampooer. We've only once ever had to get a carpet <laughs> shampooer. Like that's a lot. Uh, do you, so that's a positive people, either they have a romanticized idea of what mm -hmm. you do, or they think that is so amazing. Or they, yeah. as you said, that's brave and courageous. Yep. Do you ever get a negative thing? Like oh, that's yeah. irresponsible. How do you deal with that? I want to engage it. Okay. So if they say something like, well, I mean, what is a typical thing they might say? It would be negative about that. Um, that's not safe. Okay. And I do not believe in talking people into a home birth. If you do not feel safe at home, you should absolutely not be safe at home. Now, as I've aged, I crested 40. Go ahead and talk to me about whether a woman should have the right to choose where she uses her body. That's not something you want to go into with me because that will end up being an, an incredibly painful discussion. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter who thinks it's safe or not safe. The parents of the child are making decisions for their child and they should have the right to make the ones they think are best for their child. And so if someone were to say, I don't think she should have her baby at home, it would be like, the great news is you don't have to have your baby at home. <laughs> she it's a free country. And I'm, I suspect that my feminist standpoint has probably turned some people off over the last couple of years, but I just, it's not anti-male. I just love women and I believe in women and I think they should have the right to body autonomy. Like yeah. no one should touch them or do anything to them until they consent to it. Even if that means giving birth to their child. 
Well, I think that stance is awesome. Uh, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with your job with me. I think it's really interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, This is Cheryl, and uh, she is a kick-ass midwife.